welcome to Political Therapy. I am your host, Nicholas Villa. Today's episode is titled, On Utopia. So, why is the topic of utopia pertinent for this radio program? Well, mainly for personal reasons. I've been told by therapists and friends that my personality is a mental personality. I have a mental character. What this entails is that I'm usually drifting off to my thoughts either of the past or of the future. Imagining different realities, ways to escape from my present, from my current situation. This is what in psychoanalysis is called neurosis. Neurosis is what enables people to escape from the present, from the now, from this moment. My escape, my usual escape at least, is, for lack of a better term, alternate political realities. Meaning, I'm thinking, ah, could the world be better? Ah, could the world be different? And I'm thinking of, you know, different social settings or political settings um, different to the one I have to live in. And that relates completely with the issue of utopia. Because regardless of the definition that you look up, there are two constants uh, on utopia. One is that utopia is always imagined. And second, utopia is always a better place than the one you're currently in. It's an idyllic, perfect, or even improved place, but also imagined. And more than a place, let's say, a set of social conditions. But of course, that's a dictionary definition. Psychoanalysis also has a definition for utopia, and so does philosophy. Uh, so to get into that topic and into that issue, uh, I have an audio of psychoanalyst and philosopher Slavoj Žižek discussing the topic. Because ultimately, I claim, the true utopia today is not a different order. It's the idea that the existing order can function indefinitely. The true utopia, I claim, was not communism which disintegrated in 89. It was the utopia of the 90s, the idea elaborated among others by Francis Fukuyama, that we discovered the final social form, liberal capitalist democracy, that we cannot go... So, of course, right away, Zizek takes a very political turn. Uh, and in a way, of course, uh, today's reality, the one we have to live in, is sold to us as a utopia. And it's not completely false, because if somebody from the Middle Ages, or perhaps even from a couple of centuries ago, I took a look at our current situation with transport and vaccines and uh, you know, machines that cook food and all this uh, automation and high technology. Well, of course, then, the, it, today's reality would certainly seem like a utopia uh, to many people from the past. In fact, if you take narratives of what people thought were utopia, many of them would look would look like today's reality. So the argument that we're living in a utopia has some standing. Now, how can that relate 
to the previous episode where I put forward that our current political situation is absurd. The question is, can today's version of utopia, of this utopia we live in, uh, be considered absurd? And fortunately for our mental and physical health, of course it can. Let's listen to Zizek once again. But we have a third utopia, which is again neither this classical utopia of imagining an alternative universe, not even dreaming about really realizing it, then the capitalist utopia of ever new desires, extreme forms of satisfying your desires. There is a third mode which I would say is precisely the real, the, the real core of utopia. I think a truly radical utopia is not an exercise in free imagination. Like you sit down, don't have anything wiser to do than to imagine possible ideal worlds. It's something that you do literally as out of an inner urge. You have to invent something new when you cannot do it otherwise. Through you. So what Zizek does there is actually uh, diversify the concept of utopia into, say, three options, where one is the one that sort of the pathological, you know, neurotical one, uh, where you just imagine a different world, you're either in the future or in the past, but in your head, of course, avoiding your present life, you know, avoiding the moment, just somewhere in your head. Uh, the second one is basically the capitalist utopia, uh, which means always going a step further, you know, through consumerism, just buying a bit more, just buying a better gadget, or just transgressing the norm just a bit more, uh, perhaps uh, creating even one one more gender, you know, not just male or female, but one more, and then another one. It's always going a bit further through consumerism, uh, never being satisfied, always going, transgressing a bit more in order to, satis to satisfy one's desire, which he considers equally pathological faults, uh, meaning there's no real uh, authenticity or emancipatory potential in that option. And also, of course, uh, highly accepted, because many experts and politicians and you know, people in general have sold that as you know, utopia what we mentioned last time, the free world and, you know, a world we have to enjoy, that we are obliged to enjoy, and so on and so on. And then there's the third option, which is the utopia that sort of comes from within and you have to enact, that you have no option but to enact that utopia. And that utopia that needs to be enacted no matter what is what a Dutch historian's book is all about. The historian's name is uh, Rutger Bregman. I'm sorry, Rutger Bregman. And uh, the book is called Utopia for Realists. I don't intend to do a book review on Utopia for Realists. Uh, what I do want to do is just put forward the urgency uh, of utopia that that book poses. At least in my opinion, the big urgency that creates the need for the different examples of utopia that that book um, puts forward, is the urgency of poverty. So the narrative goes a bit like this. 
At the beginning of the 20th century, economists, experts, politicians uh, were forecasting that the problem of today's uh, world, of the 21st century, would be what to do with all the free time humanity would have. Because everybody would be well taken care of, uh, and furthermore, they would be well taken care of without having to work, because the machines would do it. And because productivity uh, rates were so high, people would just, you know, need to find out what to do with all the new freedom, with all, with all the new free time. And of course, well, that didn't exactly happen. And at that time, they forecasted that if we were not living in some sort of free time utopia today, well taken care of, well fed, well clothed, uh, and so on and so on, living in you know decent conditions, and so on and so on, it would be it would be because politicians got it terribly wrong. And of course, they got it terribly wrong, and so do people who vote for them. But that's the previous episode. What the book does is give multiple accounts of, let's say, utopian policies and measures that were taken and that worked quite well to prevent the urgency of poverty. And I think the book does this quite well, because... Uh, the book doesn't take issue with the poor, but with poverty itself. And the book doesn't blame poverty on the poor, on their laziness, or on their, you know, vicious uh, nature, but on the, you know, stupid way that they're being governed. And not just poverty, but unemployment and, you know, many other social ills. For example, if you have 10 candidates for every job opening... Well, then, maybe the problem isn't the demand for jobs, meaning the people, but the supply, right? I mean, why blame the demand, the people, when there are really just not enough jobs to go around for everybody? The book also gives a very convincing and really simple argument that the problem with poverty is basically not having money or being poor and nothing else. And if the problem with being poor is having no money, then the best things that the best thing that governments can do is give the poor money, not in terms of assistance, not in terms of you know charity, but just handing them out money, and in fact handing out everybody money, just for the reason that they're alive. But the book isn't just speculation. What it does is it gives detailed accounts of different instances where this has been tried out and has worked completely well. And when I say work quite well, I mean in a, in a different or a wide spectrum of aspects. For example, people assumed that if, you know, people get free money, uh, they would, you know, people would just stop working because why work if you get free money, if you have a guaranteed income? And the results and reality shows that this just doesn't happen. Another worry is that these programs would be just too expensive. You know, what sort of public budget could afford this, you know, free money for everybody? And the results show that it's, it's actually cheaper and more productive to give to hand out people free money because that money that's being handed out is being saved uh, or, you know, not spent on other sort of social ills such as uh, policemen and uh, social workers and 
you know, social security, you know, it, it's really at the end, uh, savings for society. And those people who get money actually become more productive and add more to the economy or contribute more. Of course, the book also takes issue with uh, the concept of the GDP uh, as a telling, you know, indicator of reality as a whole, which is what it has become to be, and argues that it's really more of a wartime indicator than a peacetime indicator. But again, I, I just want to put forward the main arguments. So, if all these measures have worked so well, how come we're not living in a world where all these measures are indefinitely enacted and basically law? Well, the answer that uh, the author gives, Berkman, is that it's basically because of politicians, because it's politically unfeasible, but there's no other reason besides that. It's not economic, it's not, uh, I don't know, there's, there's no really any external constraint aside from the fact that people just want just won't do it. You know, governments just won't do it. So it really is a very good book. Uh, I think people should really read that book. And um, if there is any doubt, you know, when you have the urgency to enact your very own utopia or, or, or a collective utopia, keep in mind that the arguments against the enacting of that utopia will be these three according to sociologist Albert Hirschman. I hope I'm pr pronouncing that in the correct way. Uh, the first one is futility, which basically people will say, you know what, it's not possible. The second one, it's danger. You know, people will say that the risks are too great. And the third is perversity, you know, that uh, utopia will disintegrate into dystopia. Well, for those who pretend that utopia cannot be enacted, on these grounds, Zizek also has a message. And so on. We should dare to enact the impossible. We should rediscover how to, how to not imagine but enact utopia. The point is not again about planning utopias. The, the point is about practicing them. And I think this is not a question of, uh, of uh, should we do it or should we simply persist in the, in the existing order. It's much more radical. It's a matter for survival. The future will be utopian or there will be none. Mm -hmm.